This is the good, the Baz, and the ugly. I'm the Baz. Well, that no, I'm Baz. That sounds weird if I were going around calling myself the Baz. Anyway, uh, look, this podcast is filled with uncensored interviews with experts in particular fields or real-life stories from people who have inspiring personal tales to tell. It covers various topics and life stories that I've really dug, you know what I mean? And I think you'll dig them too. Just so you know, this podcast is for grown-ups. It may contain adult themes, sexual references, and strong language. Fuck yeah! No, I just wanted to. Sheet. Ladies and gentlemen, the story you're about to hear is true. Hold it now, wait, hold it. I know you're gonna dig this. I think the best thing for me to do is to introduce him. What the... What's his name? Baz Ashwami. It's not Baz Ashwami, it's Baz Ashmawi. See, you two, you two take this for granted. There's listeners at home, they don't get to... They don't get the visual. You see, what I do is, what I do is, when I hear that music, I, st- I stand up and I do this kind of <laughs> flappy thing with me, a chicken dance with me. And then there's the 70s pelvic thrust as well. <laughs> Whatever. And then I hear my mother's voice and that kind of, uh, that kind of quells or blunts your libido straight away. Shouldn't be getting that excited about a podcast anyway, should I? But I am. I am excited, I can tell you. You're very welcome. Welcome to uh, the good, the baz, and the ugly. forgot what it was called there for a second. Um, my, I'm just going to... just. Will I get straight into it this week? Just yeah. no flapping around, right? My question this week is, can people change? John John? Yes. Good. Is that yeah, John John? Or, hell yeah. Yes, hell yeah. Well, look... But I mean really, really feckin' change. I heard this expression for years, right? It's one of Tanya's favourites, and that's... Leopard doesn't change its spot. Like, yeah, 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 because you're an expert on sub-Saharan African wildlife, I think. Uh, <laughs> but we all know what she means, right? Let me tell you this, and this is the truth. This cat, this cat right here, has changed his spots over the years. I'm telling you, I really, really have. With a little bit of therapy... Uh, at some cost, uh, but but I think I think w- what happens sometimes in life is that good things are more often than not really shit things happen a lot of the time to very good people, and these events then dictate the person you are and become to you in your head. But it's just this little excuse that you give yourself. I'm like this because my dad left, or I'm like this because my husband cheated on me. I'm like this because I didn't get into engineering or whatever, right? Self-pity is is a dangerous uh, bedfellow. Bedfellow. I don't think I've ever said that word. Get me. Uh, just Sorry, I just arrived from the Victorian era on my wooden horse eating treacle and mutton. <laughs> it's just... I, don't know. I, think, I think I was thinking in my head because you wallow in bed and sometimes if, if I were ever feeling down or anything, I'd, I'd kind of be lying in me bed with self-pity or something. I think that's where my head was. But, and you know what? If you need to do that, that's all right. It's okay to do that. But sometimes you have to, you have to snap out of that. You can only grieve over something for so long until it becomes toxic. And in some cases, is spiritually fatal. Could you say that? Yeah. Yeah. Like it's, dangerous it's a dangerous area to be in i was watching netflix the other night and i came across a documentary feature called roll with me shit it was amazing shit it was brilliant honestly it's one of the best things i've seen recently uh, it was it had that real <laughs> slap in the face i didn't really slap john john there by the way um it has that real slap in the face kind of effect on me where 
it kind of grounds you because sometimes you, you have that little bit of self-pity for yourself and then you see someone do something so astonishing and against all odds and you just it just wakes you up a bit you know um look we're all guilty of things like procrastination and finding the perfect reason not to do something that we know is challenging that we know is going to be hard or even in some people's cases next to impossible my guest this week is somebody who did the exact opposite of that i think he was 22 when he was in a car accident that changed his life forever he was on his way to his first acting audition and his jeep was t-boned and flipped and gabriel was flung through the windscreen of his vehicle smashing into a telephone pole that crushed his spinal cord can you imagine the accident left him paralyzed from his mid chest down after 20 years of booze and drug abuse gabriel cordell set out to become the first man to roll across the united states in a manual wheelchair i mean bog standard two wheels and a seat that's it a 3100 mile journey to put that in Irish terms, he went up and down the length of Ireland 10 times, up to 70,000 feet in elevation. 70,000 feet! That's like climbing Mount Everest twice. He joins me now from his home in LA to tell me all about his story and why change is so important. Gabriel, how are you doing? I'm doing great, John. John, it's uh, I'm always happy. Oh, jo- don't confuse me with that mug. John, John's the producer. I'm Baz. That's John, John over there in the corner. He's he he does the work, and I take the glory. That's the way. That's the way this arrangement is supposed to work. It's all right. We all sound the same. Drop a few H's. You're in. Don't worry about it. <laughs> Tell me this. Um, for people yeah, who haven't seen the movie, right? T- tell me your background to begin with as a young man. Say the year before the accident. Wh- where were you at? The year before the accident, I was 21 years old. I was living my dream, pursuing my passion of being an actor, uh, hopefully wanting to make a difference. And I thought acting was maybe the platform. Where were you acting? You were in New York or whereabouts were you? New York. Okay. I live. I lived on Long Island, but I was only twenty minutes from New York City. So that's where I did all my studying, all of my workshops, all of my plays. Everything was in New York City based, and uh, I was. I was just living my my dream. Young guy, good looking guy, because people can't see you. you're an incredibly handsome man. If I was blessed with good looks, I think I'd look like you. I think we have a similar kind of look. You're just better looking. So tell me the day of the accident. What happened exactly? So it was a typical morning. I worked for the family business. And that morning I had to, to go work at the family business. And then that night I worked as a dancer for a DJ company. So you, usually what I do is I always drive to my second job, which is the dancing. But anytime I go to the city, I always took mass transit every single time, except this one time where I had to, I figured, let me go to my audition, my first professional audition. I was excited for Vidal Sassoon hair product. And uh, I figured, you know what, let me go to work. I'll come back and instead of me taking the train, I'll drive into the city and then from my audition, I'll go right to my second job. 
the only time I ever did that, and uh, about a mile a mile and a half in route from my house, someone crossed the red light and T-boned me in my Jeep, and I flipped, I flew out, hill, hit a telephone pole with my back, and that's all she wrote. And I just turned 22 about a month ago. Unbelievable. So tell me this, like, do you know what amazed me about the, the, the film? Um, it was such an honest portrayal of someone going through that, becoming a paraplegic and, and talking about things that, that I just hadn't heard someone speak about before. Like the recovery, there's not recovery, but what, what happened after, after the accident? Like what was the reaction from family? What was your reaction? Um, how long was therapy? So the reaction obviously was just shock that I can't believe that this happened to me. This is one of paralysis I'm talking about. Now there are different levels of paralysis. So what's your level? What were you, where, where? My level is T6, which is about right underneath my, my nipple line. So it's about three quarters of my body, but I still have use of my hands, of my upper body. So it didn't affect my upper body and my, the mobility in my hands. But paralysis is probably the most devastating injury one can sustain because you lose everything, but yet you can go and live a whole life and your body is half numb. And so the greatest decision I ever made was when I was, I just turned 22, so I became an adult. And when they put me into rehab, which was for three months, they put me in adult ward. And they rolled me into this room with, God bless them, two men in their 80s on life support, ready to flatline at any moment. I mean, this was the room that they put me in where I had to live for a few months to rehabilitate. And I lost my composure and my emotion. And I had my brother roll my bed out into the hallway, into the nurses, down to the nurses station. I told them, if you do not find me a room where there is a sense of hope, a sense of inspiration, I swear I will have my brother roll my bed back down Second Avenue to the hospital. Where did you, did you find inspiration anywhere? So after about an hour and a half of sitting in the hallway, waiting of where they're going to put me, they came back and they said, we found a bed for you but it's in the pediatrics ward. What did you get from the pediatric ward? Well, what I got was perspective. I got perspective on my life. I got perspective on life in general. And I was living with children from six months to 18 years old. I saw every illness, every sickness, every disability, every disease a child could have. And it just completely destroyed me. It broke my heart but it made me realize how fortunate I was to have the life I had for 22 years of health and normalcy. I know, I, I know like there's so many layers, right, to, to this story, like your own battle with drugs. So you recreationally messed around with drugs from the age of what? Like, how old were you? 13, what type of drugs are you talking about? I started with uh, marijuana and alcohol. Okay. You know, and um, and throughout my teen years, you know, I did my acid and my mask. Then, you know, when I was like 18, 19, I tried crack cocaine and I never did heroin. That's the one thing I would never, ever do. Because a lot of times they say, oh, because of my accident, I got into my drug use. That wasn't the case. I did the drugs in the beginning because I was a curious guy. I just wanted to party and just to 
See, oh, what does this do to you? What does this do to you? What I thought was really interesting was most people would think drugs were a result of you feeling sorry for yourself or keeping yourself occupied. But you, you mentioned, which I thought was incredibly honest, that it was this kind of uh, mechanism for, for your sexual frustration. Because I've always kind of, it's the first thing you think if you think, oh my God, can, they, can you still have sex or can you not? And I know it varies from person to person. But the situation for you um, sexually, being a young man as well, what, you, what age you were, what was that? What, like, what was the limitation for you? You still had libido feelings, and but no... There was nothing. I was dead. Sexually, sensation-wise, I was dead. There was no sensation, no feeling. I was completely cut off. Um, listen, I haven't felt my man parts in, uh, you know, since 1992. Uh, I haven't been able to sexually fulfill myself no sexual release, nothing. That is so hard. So, so tell me this from, how did, how did you even begin to try and get your head around that? I know you don't have any choice, but you still had urges, I suppose, did you? I struggle with it every single day. Even today, I struggle with it. It's so difficult. Because listen, God, you turn on the TV and all it is is sex. And I live in, I live in LA. You go outside and there's just beautiful women everywhere, just scantily dressed. And it's, it's nothing you get used to. It is what it is, you know, but it's nothing you get used to or you accept it because you, have, you can't do nothing about it. So it's, it's a difficult process. Being in a relationship makes it a lot more difficult. But it's not like the be all end all. Like, you know, that's not, you know, what's going to make me happy. But it is a struggle every single day it, it sounds like something just for especially for a young good-looking guy like yourself i imagine it was impossible so i'm always fascinated by people go oh well you know i hit rock bottom and da -da. what was rock bottom this is the thing that that i'm most ashamed about i started doing voyeuristic things i started going to stores looking for women who are wearing very little clothing or wearing very loose clothing, trying to go behind them when they bend down so I can see the back of their pants, if I can see their underwear. If women are wearing skirts, I would go and sit underneath an escalator and wait so they can go up so I can watch, see their skirts. Invading their personal space and their privacy and invading just their, just them, invading them without them knowing so you just kind of get, fell into this kind of committed, kind of voyeuristic, kind of unhealthy bubble, right? Because I felt so bad about what I was doing when I was sober. Because remember, when I when you're, when you're high, I mean, you know, cocaine is one thing, but when you're on high on meth... Because, Gabriel, uh, the hardest thing about something like that, I imagine, is the fact that you're probably doing it kind of wasted, but then when you're coming back and you're not high or you're not off your head... You've got all that, that kind of guilt. All my inhibitions, all my morals and ethics went out the window. And I would do anything to get my fix. It's just, it, it, it's just the after effect something like that will have on you because that's what they say is and guilt is just the gift that keeps on giving. Do you know what I mean? It, like you're, you're bound to get to a, to a final stage where you just have to catch your reflection in the mirror and then ask yourself, do I like what I see? You know, I think, and you're not the first or last person to ever be in a position where they have to readjust how they're living their life. So you get to five years, you've had enough. 
how on earth did you come up with the idea to get in a wheelchair and wheel yourself an absolutely impossible distance across America? Where did that come up from? The one good thing and one of the greatest things that ever happened in my life came out of my drug use. So I had my regular morning. I went to my dealer. I picked up. I went to the porn shop. I had my videos. So I'm high as a kite. And I, I have my porn with me on my lap. And I'm rolling through this supermarket parking lot. And I had my glasses on so I don't have to make eye contact with anyone in the sky. Just like, hey, hey, I need to talk to you for a second. And I'm just like, Jesus, this guy's going to ruin my high. And he goes, yo, man, can I talk to you for a second? And I was like... All right, what's up? He goes, listen, he goes, I'm inventing a new wheelchair and I wanted to pick your brain and I'll pay you for your time. And I was like, pay me? That's more money for drugs. Okay, you got it, man. So, so we, we created this relationship. I would go to his house. He would pick my brain for a couple of hours. He would give me like 50, 60 bucks and I would go and I get my drugs. And about three years later, he says to me, um, I built it. I was like, you built what? He goes, I built the wheelchair. It's done. I'm like, holy shit. He goes, I want you to come and check it out. I went to his house. I checked out the new wheelchair. It's completely different than it's, it's like a rowing device. It's, it's not just you, you know, you use your hands with the wheels. It's like a, like a rowing device. And so once I went there and, and remember, I'm still in the heavy drug use. But I always had it in the back of my mind that I was going to do something extraordinary in my life. And so once I got on the chair, my brain started going. And I started thinking, has anyone ever rolled across California? And then I went online. Has anyone rolled across California? I didn't see anything. I was like, has anyone ever rolled across America? Is anyone stupid enough to do that? And there were three guys that I found that did it. But they did it in modified wheelchairs. And then I was like, well, how do I stand out? What if I do it in a regular wheelchair? And so I, I told the guy, I was like, listen, I'll roll your wheelchair across America. You pay for it. And he thought I was crazy. And uh, he goes, I, I can't afford it logistically. I dropped that, trying to convince him. But the idea stuck. And then I was like, okay, this is what I'm supposed to do. This was the extraordinary achievement that I've been looking to do since I was, I don't know, seven years old. The irony of it, right, from, from watching you do it, which I, no matter how much we talk about it, you have to see you do it to really get a feeling for it. But the first thing I thought is, I'd have drug tested you on the trip because you'd want to be on crack to think you can, you can push yourself 3,000 miles over 100 days, right? I'm, I'm right with that, yeah? How do you prep? How do you, how do you get ready to do that? Like what type of training? How long did you train? I was on an island by myself because I had no, I have no reference point. I tried to get in contact with those three people who did it in the modified chairs and I couldn't get a hold of anyone. And so I was on an island by myself. I couldn't ask anyone, what, what do I do? How do I train? And so I figured, okay, let's, let's be practical. I have to roll. And I have to roll streets and I have to roll mountains, up mountains. So I joined the YMCA uh, for the first two months. I just did weight training and swimming and built my uh, inner core, strengthened that. And once I, I felt strong, I just hit the pavement and I rolled all over Los Angeles. For six months, I, I didn't drive a car. I just rolled everywhere. There's a lot of layers to this story, right? There's the story of 
you doing this amazing trip and bringing yourself across America. Then there's the story of um, your your nephew, Christopher, yeah. right? And his battle with, with addiction and, and staying away from gangs and all that. And then there's this motley crew with you as well of of filmmakers or, or are they filmmakers? I'm not sure. They're like the Avengers, just a bit crazy. That's what it looked like to me. How many of you were there? We started with six and then when we were in New Mexico, there was a guy riding his bike from California to Tennessee and we happened to be on the same freeway and he was he was biking and he saw me rolling and he stopped and we started talking and this guy abandoned his trip and just joined us and rolled 2,000 miles with me to New York. See, that's the bit that I just, like, like it's this, like, Forrest Gump in a wheelchair with these misfits just going, I'm going this way, who's coming? Because no one's getting paid, right? No, no, There's no money, no one's getting paid. And everyone just has this one goal. I love it. I, sorry, I just, I just can't tell you how much I just haven't seen anything so inspiring in so long. Like, what was the reaction of people, uh, uh, like, as you, were, as you were going by? Like, what was, what was the reaction you were getting from, from your regular punters? They were the lifeline of this whole trip. Every single day, we were stopped. Someone who, who saw us rolling, someone who, who heard our story on the news, because we were covered in every state, the news covered us. And we shared a lot of laughs, we shared a lot of tears, and we shared a lot of inspiration. And we, we did not just inspire people, we were inspired by the, the, the support and the love and the encouragement from these strangers. And it didn't matter what color you were, what race you were, what religion you were, what political affiliation, it didn't matter because we were all connected on the human level. They were the reason why I got up every day, as bad as I was feeling, as much pain I was in, as frustrated as I was with my crew, the people that we met along the way every day is what got me up to continue. Because when, when I was watching, I actually felt for you a lot, because I thought, all these people who are your team that are traveling with you, who obviously like adored you, you know, but but individually probably had mentally a lot going on. Like, you know, they seemed uh, slightly imbalanced at times, you know, but they're doing the camera work and they're recording and they're this misfit crew. And then you've Christopher. So for anyone that doesn't know your nephew, what was going on with Christopher at the time? Because I love that relationship with you and him. I just thought that was one of the most beautiful things I'd seen, you know? He's been into gangbanging for five, since he was uh, 15 years old. And he was doing every drug, including heroin, every drug you can possibly think of. He started when he was 13 years old. And by the time I was ready to leave, my sister was like, I don't know what to do with him. You need to do something with him. My sister called me in desperation. I was like, you need to handle him because I don't know what to do anymore. And when your sister calls you, and tells you this, you, you got to do something. And believe me, this was the last thing I needed. So, so, let it, so just for people to get the picture, Christopher is literally the night before, I think, there's a, part, a moment where Christopher admits that he's still doing drugs, but he's going clean from the day you start the journey. Right. So he's detoxing at the hardest level while this journey is beginning, yeah? Yes, with, with seven strangers that he's never, ever met living in a 32-foot can of sardine. 
I fell in love with the relationship between you and Christopher. I'm nearly afraid to ask you how Christopher is doing. No good. Unfortunately, he was great. The 100 days that we were on the road was the longest he's ever been clean since he was a young boy. You know, once we got to New York, he found a job and he was living on his own and he had a car and he drive driver's license, making his own money, but no one holding him accountable. And he had his freedom and he had money and then he started back at the drugs. And from that point on, he never recovered. As we speak today, he's been in rehab for three weeks now. Well, I'm sorry to hear that, but Christopher, I think what you did or what you gave him for those hundred days, though, is something that will stay with him forever. So I, I think what you did with him is honestly, I do. I think if you lived your whole lifetime, but you could keep those hundred days, I think they're probably the most amazing hundred days he'll, he'll ever have. You know, you were going from very intense uh, heat during the day to these really cold temperatures at night. Was this something that had to be managed to avoid getting sick or did you just roll for as long as you could or, or when did you sleep or what was the days like? My goal was to roll across America in 65 days. But three days into the roll, I realized that was not going to happen. It was a mess. My whole rolling really, really revolved around how I was dealing with the crew. And the more the crew got dysfunctional, the more I stayed out. Like, what, what were they fighting about? Stupid shit, you know. Um, we had a Marine vet who had PTSD, okay? We had two guys who were hardcore addicts taking drugs till the day we left. We had a homeless guy who had Asperger's. So put six dysfunctional people in the same place they're going to fight about anything and everything. Do you know what's crazy about that? You, the maddest bloke that, uh, like, from uh, stuff that you've told me, just a cra- like a crazy guy. Has, you're the leader of the group. <laughs> they're coming to you for su- support and guidance. And, and I, I felt as you were doing this journey, you were just becoming this father figure. It was that transformation from going which is, is, it's the human connection there, Gabriel, that got me, is someone who's going from rock, rock, fucking bottom, to go from that to leading this group of people and helping them battle their own demons. I became the father figure because, listen, it was up to me how far we went every day, and it was up to me whether we were going to make it or not. My God, it was just, it's just the best thing I've seen in so long. Like, I'm not saying the camera work was the best camera work I've ever seen around, but the fucking story, man, the fucking story was just, just, just the most human story. You're such an inspiration. Do do you know the one thing that stood out to me? At no stage, because you're a really fit, handsome kind of guy who's come to terms with, with being in a wheelchair and the limitations of that, but you're so fit and, and, and healthy that did you never think, shit, I'm going to try and pull and push my way with my arms and my shoulders 3,000 miles. What if, I, what if I was to damage my shoulders? What, what if you were to do, which is a big possibility, right? This is like marathon, a marathon every day. Did, did no, one, no one step up and say, Gabriel, man, you could just, you could end up. I could end up quadriplegic. Um, my parents, I felt bad for my parents more than anyone. I, I felt the worst for my parents because, you know, when their son who's in a wheelchair already tells you that I want to roll 
across the country and all they're thinking about is your health. What, what if something happens to your arms? Then someone has to take care of you for the rest of your life. Like literally, if one thing happened to one of my arms where I couldn't use my arm anymore, I become a quad in a sense, even though I can still feel and I have motion, but I would need someone to literally help me get dressed, literally help me shower, help me get out of my, like literally 24 hours helped me. But I was willing to take that chance because I knew that this was what I was supposed to do. When I got into my accident, mm -hmm. I knew, I always said that my accident was an accident, but it wasn't by accident. And I knew that, that there was a reason why this happened to me. And the role was the reason. Do you know what got me? Because originally you obviously set out to do it for you, you know, to do, to do something, to do this great feat. But then, then you, you met people along the way. I remember you, you bumping into that kid, Marco. And it's, it's a thing I've heard before, when you're hugging a child, you should, you should never let go because sometimes they need that hug really badly. So when they let go, you should let go. This kid was clinging to you. Like, what was his story? Well, uh, Marco has a very severe case of uh, cerebral palsy. Mentally, sharp, right? But yeah. everything else, no, no mas, no good. So, you know, there are certain people that you just connect with, right? And I didn't connect with him because he was in a wheelchair. I mean, because there was other people in wheelchairs. Just, just something about him, his spirit, his energy, it really drew me to him. And when I looked into his eyes, like he got me. I could see it with him. He had this, you just inspired him. You were just like his hero. Do you know, you're this guy in a wheelchair doing this impossible thing, right? And then you've all these other people that are with you and they're all looking up to you and they're going, they're willing you to, to do it. Like, yeah. it was the weight of, of all that pressure. Like, what, did you think of failure? Like, what would failure have meant if, if you were to tear your rotator cuff, for, say, for example, and that would be the end of the journey? What would that have meant to you? Did, did you put a lot of pressure on yourself? Well, you know, so to me, you know, there's a thin line between failing and not succeeding, right? So for me, if, if I'm rolling and I blew out my shoulder or I got hit by a car, I didn't fail. It's just I wasn't able to complete it because of outside circumstances. Failing for me is when I don't try. The fact that I put forth the effort and gave it everything I had, and for whatever reason, I fell short. To me, I wouldn't have looked at it as a failure. I just would have looked at it as unfortunate circumstances. So it was never about failing for me. And yes, there was no option. I was never going to quit. I was never going to stop unless my body gave out or unless I, I got hit by a car. That was the only way. So that 100%, I knew I was going to roll until I could not roll anymore. That was 100%. Everything else, I just had to trust and I had to have faith and believe that I'm going to be okay. Some of the stuff I saw you do, like on a freeway and you're in a little wheelchair and trucks, juggernauts are just whipping by you. Right. Terrifying, okay? No, I did not feel terrified or nervous, I don't know why, I felt so safe. I felt like I had this cloak around me that nothing was gonna happen. Like I really, really did. What about the tornado? Oh gosh, I don't know. I don't know if you've ever experienced tornadoes or if you've ever seen it. Just my wife. <laughs> um, like I didn't physically see the actual tornado, 
itself, but the residual effects and the destruction was just so overwhelming. Just to give people perspective, you were in a wheelchair in the, the lashings of rain in this storm. There's a, there's a mile-wide tornado, and you're just, you just keep trucking on. You just... I, 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 I got to go across the country, man. I, 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 we had to cover a certain amount of miles every day. So I was rolling through the pouring rain, through the, the lightning and the thunderstorms. And people on the street are like, what are you crazy? Get indoors, get inside. You're going to get killed. And we did stop rolling because it got really bad. But yeah, man, listen, you know, the elements are the elements. You know, there was no way we were going to make it through America without rain or, and stuff like that. And do you just, deal with it do you know what got me as well uh, and it was you know when you were going uh, like like some people might be mistaken and think that you were just on one long straight road across america if they haven't traveled america right we're talking you were climbing steep steep mountains at times right and i remember watching you in the chair where you were literally doing like one rep pushes on the wheels like inch by inch it was one of the most painful looking things i've what made you push yourself on what did you think of at those times or how blessed i am to be able to do this that's all i kept thinking about how blessed i am it wasn't long into our journey that i realized that if we can pull this off if we can pull this off we're going to change a lot of people's lives or at least inspire a lot of people around the world and that's what kept me going man once we saw the reaction from the people in this country, I was like, we're onto something. We're onto something that can really be transforming for people. And that's what kept me going. So every hill, every mountain I had to climb, let me be the example of what's possible. Because traveling through, traveling through a country like America, I've done it a couple of times. I've been blessed enough to, to travel across America and it's an amazing, amazing, there's so many amazing trips, but that one you did across, right across America from LA to New York is just a fantastic journey. Can you kind of, I know it might be difficult, but can you articulate the feeling when you knew, shit, I'm actually gonna do this. This is gonna happen now, I've, I've done it. Was, was there a moment where that, when was that like? Or? Um, I had a good feeling. I had a really good feeling when I made it to Texas. That's miles away, wasn't it? <laughs> that's a long way. I wouldn't be having a good feeling in Texas, but that's interesting. Why, why Texas? Um, I don't, because, you know, Texas was, uh, listen, I'm a huge Dallas Cowboys fan. And so Texas was always a place where I, at some point I thought I'd live and uh, it was right in the middle of the country. And I just felt that if I can get to Texas, that I would have gone over all the mountains of California, of Arizona, of New Mexico. And then after Texas, it would be pretty much, when I say flat, I don't literally mean flat, but for the most part, I won't have to climb any huge mountains until I get to Pennsylvania. And so that's why I figured once I get to Texas, I'm okay. But my last day that I, that I rested was in Tulsa, Oklahoma. From Tulsa, Oklahoma, I didn't stop one day for rest till I, till I got to New York, which was about 16, 1700 miles. This is what a wuss I am. I don't know if you know what a wuss is. I had double lung surgery a couple of years ago, right? And the first time I ran 5K, I bawled. I, 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 I couldn't believe that I had gone from a position of lying in a bed, not being able to move, 
to being able to run 5K. When you finished in New York and your family and your mother and your father and, and all those people were around with the cameras and the big, the whole parade. You kept your shit together. I was watching you. You didn't cry. You didn't break down. You did. What were you feeling? Oh, uh, believe me, I, it was very hard not to cry. It was very hard not to. I, I definitely held my emotions in. And, um, and you can tell there's a moment where I've, when I'm rolling in the back of the cop car um, and the camera comes to me, you can tell that I'm really fighting to keep the tears in. I felt relief and I felt a great, great burden lifted off of me when it came to my parents that now for the last five years, I was ashamed for them because I was a piece of shit. And this has nothing to do with saying, oh, if you do drugs, you're a piece of shit. It's how I felt about me. It has nothing to do. Addiction is serious. And there are, and most people are really good people who find themselves in a really, really, really bad situation. But they're very wonderful people. For me, personally, I felt like a piece of shit that my parents do not deserve a son like me for everything that they've given to me and all the love and the support and encouragement. And this is how I pay them back by being a full-time drug addict piece of crap. For me, I felt that they deserved someone better to represent them as parents. If there was people out there who are kind of self-loathing and don't like who they see in the mirror, and they've right. kind of given up on themselves, and they're at that stage that you were at, how, how, do you tell, how would you tell them to heal? How would you tell them to, to mentally heal or get better? Like, what do they need to do or find? You know, like, look, obviously for each person is different because, you know, you can give the same person, you can give five people the same tools and you'll have five different outcomes. You know, for me, obviously, is to, to, to love yourself, uh, to believe in yourself more so than anything. I found that whatever is bringing you down you have to find something that's going to trump it, something that's going to be more of a force in your life that's going to be able to pull you out of it. That's what I needed. Like I said, the love and support I had from my friends and family was not enough. And most of the time, it's never enough. Otherwise, we wouldn't be addicts and we wouldn't get as far down as we get if love was enough. Do you think having this impossible goal, this this thing to channel um, all this energy into that, that by proving to yourself that you could do this, that then if, if you could get in a mechanical wheelchair and wheel across America, that if you can do that, you can pretty much do anything, right? Absolutely. And, and that's the one thing for, for anyone who finds themselves in a predicament where they feel trapped and they feel like they can't get out of it. I don't know how else you get out of it unless until you find something that has more meaning and more purpose than what's keeping you down. You understand? And, and that's really hard because, you know, for me, you know, they said, well, you, well, is it healthy what you're doing? Cause you're really going from one extreme of being a drug addict, like at the, at the, at the bottom of the barrel. Cause you're only seven months dry, right? Or eight months. Eight months clean before I left. Right. So I went from one extreme to the complete opposite and extreme. And some people said, well, is that healthy? Because you're just replacing one addiction with another. Well, if this addiction that's positive, OK, is going to get me out of this shithole 
and it's going to help change my life and it is extreme, that's fine. Well, that's the advantage of having an addictive personality that if you can channel it down the right direction, it's a powerful yeah. tool in your arsenal, right? I was about to say that. That's, the, that's an advantage and a disadvantage of having that kind of addictive personality is because if you, if you cling on to something and it's positive, you're gold. Are you still rolling now? Are you still are you still doing charity work? Are you still are you still out there rolling around? Or did you afterwards? Well, yeah. So after after the roll across America, the year after I went to Israel and I rolled for peace, uh, I rolled from Haifa to Tel Aviv. The year after that, in 2015, I rolled across Long Island for the North Shore Animal League America. And then I took a break for two years because my dad got sick and I had to take care of him. And then in 2018, you ever heard Pike's Peak? Hmm. Yeah. So, so that, that's the highest paved road in America. It goes up to 14,115 feet. So I became the first person to roll up Pikes Peak in a manual chair. That took me 10 hours to do. It was uh, 5,000 feet of elevation. So that was me rolling as far as I can in America, which I did. Pikes Peak was rolling as high as I can in America. The third leg which was supposed to complete the trifecta, was I was supposed to roll across Death Valley. This year, as we speak today, I should be rolling across Death Valley to complete the trifecta, which is roll as far as you can, roll as high as you can, and roll in the most extreme conditions. I started training, and my body was like pain every day. What's that, like arthritis or tendonitis? Arthritis, tendonitis. From the rolling, my, my back is like a question mark. I got bad scoliosis from rolling. Like anytime I move, it's click, 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 click. But what you gave people, I'm telling you, the inspiration you gave people, what you did, man, seriously. I sat on the couch with my little glute issue that I had, and my missus at the end of the movie looked over at me and just went, you moany, useless, like... She just went, that's a real man. It's what she said, that's a real man. And I was like, hands up. She said, could you do that? I've prided myself on doing every bucket listing you can. I've flown 1942 warbirds upside down. I've, I've, I've swam with sharks. I've done everything. Not a chance, not a chance. What she did was one of the most unbelievable things. If you haven't seen this movie, you're missing out. It's one of the most fantastic, inspiring things I've ever seen. You're an amazing man. I'm in awe of you, Gabriel. I wish you all the best going forward, man. Um, thank you so much for chatting to me. I really, I couldn't wait to chat to you today. I was dying for this. Thank you, Baz. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm listening. I'm always humbled, honored, and thankful and grateful for people wanting to share my story. You need to wheel your ass over here. That's what you need to do. You need to come over here and show the, the, some lads here what a real man looks like. And I, ho I hope I hope things are Christopher. I hope he does well as well and and all that, man. Big love, big love from little little Dublin to you, man. Till next time. God, Gabriel's just the best, isn't he? This this is what I think, right? For what it's worth, telling someone they have to change sometimes sadly just isn't enough. It doesn't work. I think an, an ultimatum can be important to explain, like, what's at stake. Like, stop doing drugs or stop drinking or, or you know, you're going to lose your family or I'm leaving. You know, that's, that's giving them the information they need. But as a person, I need to know what I want to change about myself. And I need to get feckin' forensic about it. 
I need to know that it's not one straight path, that I'll have up and ups and downs. Um, I need I need to have goals and be aware what triggers make me slip back into old habits. I need to learn new behaviors and not everything is going to change. Some characteristics, I think things like, I don't know, openness to new experiences or your consciousness, uh, uh, neuroticism, being an extrovert or an introvert. Like I was an extrovert as a kid. It's very unlikely I was ever going to become introverted. But sometimes I think I've personally not wanted to change personality traits, but I've had to address or, or look at my beliefs and maybe my coping mechanisms. The fact is, I can be a better version of myself, but only if I want to, and only if I'm willing to work at my beliefs and my habits. That's all I got. Look, as always, listen, if you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe, share, review, rate, fucking put a cherry on it if you like. Um, that's pretty much it for this week. Look, happy days, good luck in the cup. <laughs>